My name is Randy Horst. I teach in the art department. Um, first, I have sort of a two-phased introduction today. First, the art department was able to bring today's speaker, Wayne Martin Belger, to campus as part of the Eric Yate Carnegie Visiting Artist Program. Eric was a Goshen College student and a gifted potter when his life was tragically cut short in 1986. His family had the incredible heart and insight to turn their personal tragedy into an ongoing gift to Goshen College and to all future art majors and to the college itself, uh, following in Eric's footsteps. For over 30 years now, this program has brought some of the best and brightest visual artists to Goshen College to inspire the work of our students and to help them develop their own talents and creativity. We can't thank the Yake and Kanegi families enough for this wonderful legacy. I'd also like to acknowledge the passing within this last year of Eric's mother, Lois, and his aunt, Ethel Messler, who actually lives here or lived here in Goshen. Okay, now a brief introduction to our speaker. Wayne Martin Belger, I have, this is short, so. Wayne Martin Belger is an artist. An artist who embraces life. An artist who works with his hands. An artist who has a heart for the suffering of others. An artist that makes sculpture that is also a camera, two of which are sitting down here on the table and you can look at closer afterwards. An artist who believes in engagement. An artist who takes photographs. An artist who travels the world to give voice to others. An artist whose work is supported by institutions like the Smithsonian. An artist who helps us find beauty in unexpected places. An artist who helps us understand in a new way. Wayne Martin Belger is an artist. Please help me in welcoming him to the stage. Thank you. Such a nice introduction. And uh, thank you guys for having me here. And uh, this has been really cool. Actually, it's been literally cool because I live in Tucson, Arizona. So it's uh, been a lot cooler. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background in what I do. Uh, I've been an artist now. This is my 20th year, and I never once planned on being an artist. Um, I wanted to be like 20 other things, um, and I had many jobs. Like I was a professional treasure hunter for a while. Um, I was the L.A. Kings mascot. I was a big snow leopard for the L.A. Kings. I was the Mighty Duck for the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, where they flew me down from the ceiling and I skated around the ice. Uh, semi-pro ice hockey player, just all kinds of stuff. But I ended up being an artist um, because I completely just followed my passions and what I wanted to do. And, and also I, I was fortunate to have parents that no matter what I wanted to do, they were backing me. Um, my dad always told me if I made $2 or $2 million, as long as I'm happy and I'm following my passions, that's where he'd prefer you know, I was. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on, on uh, where all that came from and how it started. Uh, started with uh, this gentleman here. This is my grandfather. He worked at a secret air base, um, which ended up being Edwards Air Force Base out in the Mojave Desert. He is an engineer who had a degree from MIT and Caltech, and he invented something called the gas turbine engine. And that gas turbine engine ended up being this uh, um, device that they put on planes in World War II. And all of a sudden our planes could fly higher and faster than the German planes and we were untouchable in World War II because of his invention. I actually have two diplomas, or um, not diplomas, but uh, citations 
that were awarded to my grandfather that said he helped bring an early end to World War II because of his inventions. And this is the gas turbine engine. And actually, you can see the name on there. I was named after him. His name is Wayne Hamilton Allen. But that's the gas turbine engine. This is one of my grandfather's test pilots that I used to get stories about all the time. That's Chuck Yeager. Uh, actually, I have a photograph in, uh, there's a museum in Tucson at the airplane graveyard of Chuck Yeager right after he broke the sound barrier. And there's a picture of Chuck on the wing of the plane, some other guy, and my grandfather. Um, it's kind of amazing to grow up with it. I was trained as a machinist uh, about 30 years ago. Uh, I just really liked the engineering. Um, that uh, I just liked engineering, partly because my grandfather and my dad, my dad has a degree in aeronautical engineering, but my grandfather used to give me physics tests all the time growing up. Um, I was just telling Randy, I told him last night, I think, that he, my grandfather, one of my favorite things he did was he gave me a spool of thread and had the thread come underneath a spool. And this is like when I was five years old. And he said, I want you to pull the string and I want the spool to go faster than you're pulling the string back. So I want um, thrust to overtake drag. And so I used to make all these like contraptions and stuff to make that spool of thread go faster. So it started at a really young age as far as uh, you know, trying to figure out how things work. When I was machining, um, I had one of my best friends was a photographer. He did all the brochures for Nissan and Mercedes. And he was making this camera out of foam core and it was, it was a piece of junk. I mean, it just took really lousy photos. It was super shaky. So I told him I'd make him a camera. And so I made this. And being a machinist, in the way I learned machining, I was taught that if you make something, you make a tool, make it as an extension of your body. Make it part of you, and you'll be connected with that tool. So I made my friend this camera. It's machined out of aircraft aluminum. Uh, it has a Pablo Neruda poem on the top, because I was reading a lot of Pablo Neruda at the time. And also it has bees crawling in and out of the side of the camera, because I'm a beekeeper also. I love bees. There's a side of it. You kind of see the bee. So he used that camera. Uh, it was super easy to use. You could swap film out super fast. It takes four inch by five inch film. Uh, then after that, um, I made my own camera just to experiment and play with. This is called the classic camera. I found that wrought iron in a junkyard uh, just a bunch of different little pieces that I found and then I machined out the body from aircraft aluminum. This is one of the photos from it. I was raised um, Catholic, so I always really liked the Catholic imagery and shrines and altars and the way the compositions were set up for in Catholicism. And this is at a mission in Tucson, Arizona. And that was, it was about a 45 minute exposure with color film. And this was the installation for that first uh, camera I made. So I show the cameras and the photos they shot all as one piece, and I kind of set them up like a Catholic altar, too. Uh, from there, it was another experimental camera. This is called the wood camera. All the wood and the metal I found in mine shafts in Death Valley. So I would like load up my truck with just all kinds of junk I would find in Death Valley, then go home and make cameras out of them. This camera is a little bit different than the others. That it has, um, I don't know if you can see it, this copper window right here and this handle so you could pull out this copper window and there's acrylic on both sides 
and you could float things in the middle of the two pieces of acrylic. So if you see the dragonfly right there, he's just kind of floating between the two pieces of acrylic. And with pinhole camera, it doesn't matter if it's a quarter inch away or two miles away, it's in focus and it's in the image. So images will look like that. That was with a butterfly floating in the chamber in front of the pinhole. And you guys know what a pinhole camera is? Yeah, it's nothing but an itty bitty tiny little hole and there's no lens whatsoever. So it's just pure light and time coming through the small hole to make an image on the film. And that's that same butterfly in New York City. Then I experimented with underwater cameras. Uh, this is uh, called Yimiya. It's an aluminum camera that I made to use underwater. Uh, very first shot I did with it was at 115 feet deep off the coast of Catalina. It was a two and a half hour exposure. Um, not a lot of light at 215 feet deep. There's me using it. And this is one of the shots from it. It kind of gives, it, it gives this feeling that you're just kind of this misty land rather than like the typical underwater shots where you see like the sun reflecting on, this, on the bottom of the ocean. There's no reflection because it's long exposure. So this was in the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It was about a five minute exposure where you just leave it open. So all those, when the sun's flickering, it all blends together to create just kind of a softness. And that was in the Scripps Aquarium. You can actually see some people back there too. This camera is actually here. Um, this is called the third eye camera. It, it was kind of a weird thing. I had this idea of creating a camera out of a skull. And I was telling a buddy of mine, he's like, oh, I have a skull in my mom's house in England. And I'm like, you do? And he's like, yeah, my great uncle was part of his medical kit when he was learning medicine. And back at the turn of the century, you, they didn't make plastic skeletons to study. You got a real box of human bones. And that was part of your study kit. So. I said, uh, would you send it to me? And I was traveling at the time. He's like, sure. So he boxed it, um, had his mom box it up, actually sent it to my mom. <laughs> I told mom, you know, don't open the box. And uh, I got back to town and opened it up. And she's like, thanks, Wayne. Um, so, but this camera is called the third eye because if you look in the very middle up here, that's the pinhole. You can see a really small hole there. That's where all the light comes through. Four by five film goes down through the top into the middle of the skull and creates an image on the inside of the skull. And this is one of the photos. This is a series I've been working on of abandoned homesteads um, out close to Joshua Tree. There's hundreds and hundreds of abandoned homesteads out there that are, uh, they're amazing. People just walked out of them like in the 60s. So you go in these houses and you'll find clothing in the closet. You find stuff on the stove from 1960, whatever. It's uh, this ghost town that um, I just wanted to document and photograph. So I shoot black and white when I'm on the outside of the house. And then I do interior shots of the uh, in color. And also I, uh, the frames all around here, this is all artifacts in objects I found in or around the house that I photographed. This, this camera, um, this is kind of like my voyage into to photographing more people. 
Um, I grew up in Los Angeles in the punk rock scene from like 79 to 85. And it was uh, very politically active. And I kind of, this is like a reflection back to that period. The, the, the story of the dispossessed kind of came in with this. Um, the camera itself is called Untouchable. It was inspired by one of my best friends who is HIV positive. And we went climbing one time, and, and climbing could be a really kind of bloody sport sometimes. Um, we, we, we did something called Big Wall, which is in Yosemite Valley, you'll be on the side of a wall uh, like El Capitan or Half Dome for sometimes like two weeks straight climbing. And you get beat up every single day when you're climbing. And so my buddy David said, you know, Wayne, I want to let you know I have some rubber gloves in my bag. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, I just found out I'm HIV positive. And this is in a time when it was a, um, a terminal disease, not really a chronic disease. And so he, you know, was really scared. He tried to con um, connect with different communities that were HIV positive, but they were gay HIV communities, so they kind of shunned him there. All of his friends and his family shunned him. So he was in this place of us and them. You know, he was put into this category, not by his doing. He was just put into it and looked as diseased. So I wanted to study that, so I built this camera. This is actually, on the sides here, is his blood. So it's HIV positive blood in the camera. It circulates through the camera. There's a little pump right here that pumps the blood through. It goes through these tubes, up this little channel here, and then in front of the pinhole lens. So everything is shot through the blood itself. And what I do is I take this camera, I've taken it all over the world, and I photographed men, women, children, grandparents, babies um, that were HIV positive. And so it kind of changed and shifted the perception of what HIV looks like. Because a lot of people have like an idea of what a person who has HIV looks like. And this um, exhibition shifted a lot of that. Um, like this woman here um, was from Los Angeles. She was HIV positive. Worked with her for a while. This is during her photograph. Uh, this gentleman was a pretty well-known, I don't remember his name. He's like a famous actor in Hollywood. Uh, I don't know. Anybody know who he is? I have no idea. Um, this woman and her daughter were both HIV positive, super sweet. I'm still in contact with them all the time. And some of the images look like this. So all the red that you see and all the color you see in the photograph itself is actually from the blood that the uh, image is shot through. From there, I shifted into another project um, that still studied that us and them, the people that, are, um, that have been separated uh, from you know, different parts of society but not having anything to do with it. I was really inspired by what was going on in Lesbos, Greece, by the Syrian refugee crisis. So I made a camera um, to go study that. And since I make a camera for the subject, I make it from the subject. So I'll get artifacts that actually have to do with the subject. And I'm still making the camera from me. You know, it's still a tool that's part of me, 
that, is, that I'm putting forward. And then that tool also is made from the subjected photographs. So now I have this like communal bridge between me and the subject. And it's been pretty amazing with these cameras because I'll go to some place and I'll see photographers come in and they're there for a couple days and usually they get kicked out. There's no real connection to the subject. They just have this tool that they're shoving on people's faces. Many times when I go in with my cameras, there's a conversation that starts. I mean, you know, obviously they're quite unusual looking. So when I'm there, people start talking and then feel connected and all of a sudden they want to participate and they want to collaborate and they want to be part of the project. And it's a bit different process for a photographer. So I took my camera to Lesbos. This is the camera itself. Um, it has many different artifacts in it that relate to us and them. The back chamber um, is full of all kinds of artifacts. Like it has an armband from World War II from a Jewish ghetto. It has a, uh, a VIN tag from a truck that burned at Standing Rock. I don't know if you guys remember, remember that whole thing that happened at Standing Rock where we were being gassed and shot at and hosed down and there was a big fire, there's a truck that burned. The truck's ID badge is in the back of the camera. Um, the steel is actually from this section of U.S.-Mexican border wall. I have friends in Tijuana. They called me one day and they said, hey, we're going to send you something. And they actually went up with an angle grinder and they cut a section of the U.S.-Mexican border wall out and shipped it to me. <laughs> and I was like, great, camera parts. So I've been making cameras out of uh, the U.S.-Mexican border wall. Um, all the glass in the back, I made this glass chamber. Um, I found on rooftops in Palestine, mainly like in Hebron, um, Hebron, Nazareth, and in um, Gaza. That's me on the rooftop. People give you a weird look, it's like, why do you want to go up on the roof and get broken glass? I'm like, just, it's my thing. <laughs> and you can see the glass, all that glass is back there. There's the armband from World War II. And one of the most unusual parts is something somebody sent me was this crucifix in the back. Um, on the front, the crucifix looks a little bit different. There's um, Christ and there's a two-headed eagle behind Christ. But then you turn it around and there's a little glass bead there with a gold bezel and there's an EB. It was actually Ava Braun's personal crucifix. Um, Ava Braun was Hitler's wife. Um, I guess they got married right before they died. Um, but that was Ava's. Yeah, but it's all us and them. You know, people look at the crucifix and they think, you know, it's a crucifix. You know, don't think much about it, but there's always stories behind something. First place I stopped, this is uh, Karatepe. This is in Lesbos, Greece. And this is the Syrian family refugee camp. And we stayed in one of the uh, refugee um, little houses. This is the other camp, Moria. This is for all other refugees. And this camp was outrageous. I mean, it was packed solid uh, with people from you know, Afghanistan, from, I mean, from all over the world. This camp would get, on average, 5,000 people a day. And whenever I do a project, I usually contact an NGO first, and I do volunteer work for at least the first month before I take out a camera. Because with my photography, I want to connect first. I want to know the people. I want to know the situation. 
I want to know the workers. I want to know the refugees. I want to know what is really happening rather than just going in and taking pictures. Um, I've actually gotten in some pretty big fights with other photographers that just come in, take a photo, and want a product without connecting. Uh, this is my main travel companion. This is my daughter, Tara. Uh, she does a lot of the trips with me. When I went to Lesbos, she volunteered. She was 12 years old right here. Uh, she did food service and also boat rescues. So boats would come in, and she was in charge of infants and um, toddlers. And she would uh, change out their clothes, get them warm. If they were in serious medical condition, she would get them over to the uh, medical tarp. And uh, we did this most days, but then we ended up shifting to the midnight to 6 a.m. shift because that's when most of the boats would come in. You would just see all these boats just arriving on the shores of Lesbos, and it was, it was amazing. There's my daughter with a Nirvana shirt. She just wrapped up that baby down below, um, took the clothes off, wrapped her in an emergency blanket, and was just there monitoring. This is the food line daily in Moria. It was at least a quarter mile long every single day. And my daughter's over on the left there feeding. And I love that family thing. I mean, she's, it's just been the two of us since she was eight months old. And so we do everything together and we just kind of support each other and she's pretty strong. And this is, that sounded kind of loud. This is the very first photo shoot I did in, in Caratepe. A lot of children were there because a lot of the parents couldn't afford the $1,300 to pay a smuggler to get on the Chinese rubber-maid refugee boat. And so um, they would just put their children on. And sometimes we get boatloads of nothing but babies, infants, toddlers, and children. And there'd be like three adults on the boat steering it. Uh, this little boy, you didn't have a family there. This, um, oh, what I do too is he's holding a Polaroid. With a camera, I set it up so I could take a Polaroid first for like a test shot, and I always give the test shot to the person I photograph. And it was kind of cool because it was like the only photo they owned of themselves. And so they just kind of really cherished this thing, and it just kind of brought a little bit of light. And that's the photo of him I took with the Us and Them camera. And then I turn, take the negative from that, and I'll turn it into a big print. This is a, uh, actually 48 by 60 inches. And another thing I do with the photos is I ask everybody a photograph to write something from their heart. I call it words from the heart. I take that and I make a big vinyl cutout and that's it up there. So that's his handwritten words and that actually says um, Jamal and then safety. And that was his words from the heart. A lot of children. He insisted on having Miss Piggy in the shot. I'm like, sure, I like Miss Piggy. Uh, Afghan woman and her baby. This was in um, the food tent in Moria. This woman was a licensed dentist, uh, but she was, her village was outside Syria, and her practice was blown up, her home was blown up, everything was destroyed. And she came in that morning on a boat. And this is one of the examples of the words from the heart. This is, uh, it's just so touching. I, the script was absolutely beautiful, and he spent like a half hour writing it out for me. 
Uh, this is a little bit of an example how it works. This woman is Afghan, and you can see it says, it's, um, says we love you all, and in Pashto, right above it, is what she wrote and wanted to be in her image. And you can see what she wrote at the bottom of the image right there. It says, we love you all. The images I make, actually, this is old school darkroom work. It's gelatin silver paper where I'm exposing photographic paper with the negative I shot at the location. And I make my own chemistry. So I make all these different baths of developers. And then I tone each of the nine sheets differently and develop them differently. So it almost gives a stained glass window feel. So each sheet is different. And I usually keep the middle sheet where the face is gray. Then I went to Standing Rock. I was there for quite some time. The Sioux asked me to be part of their media team. Uh, they knew I have a lot of experience in tension zones and I'm okay being shot at. So they decided I would be the person between the Sheriff's Department, the National Guard, and the protesters to document everything that was going on. So I, I would get calls at three in the morning. It's like, Wayne, go to the front line. And I'd go to the front line and there'd be a bunch of people, protesters pushing it. There's M16s pointed at them. Um, it got a little hairy sometimes. I mean, I'd been hit by one rubber bullet, tear gassed a bunch of times. It was, it was an interesting experience. And also when it's negative 15 degrees, it even makes it a little bit ickier. But you gotta see a lot of amazing things. This was a prayer ceremony um, on one of the beaches. This is a uh, prayer dance that they did at the front line when it was way below zero. This is when uh, we had 2,000 US vets support the Sioux and they marched all together up to the front line even though it was like sub-zero. It seems like the more adverse the conditions are, when there's people that are dispossessed, they want to, it almost gives them energy. It's like a tribe and they feel more, more power to just go forward and just uh, drive through. Some of the people I got to meet at Standing Rock, this is, um, you guys know who Cornell West is? Dr. Cornell West. He's like civil rights activist, legendary. Um, this is in one of the chief's tents where they would plan a lot of what was going to be going on. And uh, I got to hang out with Dr. Cornell West in his sharp suit. I was smelling really bad at that point. I don't think I took a shower in a month and a half. And he was looking good. I wasn't. First photo shoot I did, this is the chief of the Sioux Nation and the spiritual leader of Lakota. His name is uh, Arvel Looking Horse. This woman um, is Navajo. This was during a battle between the National Guard and the protesters. Um, a young Navajo woman. Um, I'm still good friends with. It's, it's kind of funny. I've become really close to the Navajo because they're in Arizona where I am. And it's got to be like four or five times a month I'll find a packet of tobacco in my mailbox. I've never smoked a day in my life. But it's such like an honoring tradition, like you give tobacco to connect. And there's just all these Navajo constantly dropping off tobacco. They did with my daughter. My daughter answered the door and I go, oh, this is for your dad. And they just drive off and it's like this big thing of tobacco. And my, my daughter's like, dad, do you smoke? I'm like, no. <laughs> Don't do it. 
Um, some of the days got really chilly. This is on the front line. So where those lights are, it's all National Guard up there. I was there for over two months um, just shooting. It's really interesting. Oh, I found that gas masks, not only do they protect you and you could keep on breathing, they're really warm. So when it's negative, you know, 20 out, your face stays pretty cozy, except they do fog up at times. And this gentleman was Habasupai. Then I went to the Palestinian territories. My traveling companion again, Tara. She's such a cool head too, man. She's, she's been in some hairy situations. Like we went over into Syria with some UN observers and there was a drone strikes pretty close. And I said, honey, you know, we could take off. And she's like, no, that's okay. She's like, can we get closer? And I said, no, that's not a good idea, hon. But she, she said, I want to understand, because we just came from Lesbos for a while. And she said, I want to understand why everybody's leaving. So she wanted to have that firsthand experience to just really understand why everybody was leaving Syria. This is uh, when we were crossing over into Syria. And some of that barbed wire actually ended up in the back of the camera. That's Syria all down below. Um, this is in Nazareth. That's actually my fixer. Um, you guys know what a fixer is in photography? It's um, a person who is really connected with different organizations and people and locations to get you in and out fairly safely. And he's my Palestinian um, fixer. And the woman I photographed there. And then I went to, um, I was asked to come by Subcomandante Marcos to the Zapatista rebel compounds um, in southern Mexico to photograph them and to work with them. Uh, got there, there was a huge celebration of all these guys with masks on. And it's a really interesting experience to spend day after day for weeks with people just wearing masks and you see nothing but their eyes. And you get a whole new way of communicating. Because generally you count on people's like facial structure, you count on smiles, and, and all of a sudden when that's gone, you just have eyes and you could see so much in the eyes. I feel like you could see so much more in the eyes when, you're, when that's all you have to rely on. Uh, I was honored by, kind of honored, it was kind of a sketchy thing. I was honored to be in the lead vehicle in a 500 vehicle convoy leading their presidential hopeful, the Zapatista's presidential hopeful, around to different um, Zapatista rebel compounds. So I was in the lead vehicle and it would be hours driving through jungles without any lights and all of a sudden you'd hear a crack and it, it would stop and I'm like, great, I'm out front. And a little nerve wracking at times. Um, one of the most interesting spots we pulled into, this is a Zapatista compound deep, deep in the jungle. Um, and we pulled in at midnight and it was hundreds and hundreds of Zapatistas, mass Zapatistas, all linked arms all along the sides of the road. It was such an eerie thing. Nobody said anything. It's just all these humans linked arm there to greet us. And then we went inside and it was the biggest party in the world till the sun came up. This is my fixer in, um, in Chiapas with the Zapatistas. That's Luis. He's one of my closest friends now. Uh, I wanted to do a photo shoot of the subcomandante. And so they went and lined up all these soldiers, like hundreds of them, for the photo shoot. 
and I got to do a photo shoot of one of the commanders. It was one of those moments I'm like, where, who, who am I? How did this happen? You know, it's like they lined up all these people, and I'm like, I hope I do good. This was an interesting situation, too. I was, um, the caravan took off while I was doing the photo shoot, and I packed up my camera, and everything went running, and I watched them disappear into the jungle. So I spent about six hours hiking through the jungle. I had no money, no passport, nothing. And I was still enjoying myself. You know, it was a, kind of a cool experience, but I'm like, I'm in the middle of nowhere in the jungle, just like hiking. Ended up okay, the, when the, the buses broke down. So I said, hey, there's my bus. This Zapatista was, couple was super cute. They're mid-30s. Their biggest passion in the world was beans, corn, and um, uh, coffee. That's all they would talk about. And I went to take their photo, and she ran off. She's like, wait, wait, wait. And she came back with a plate of tortillas that was made from the corn they grew. She really wanted it in the photo. Um, Zapatistas also work with the 43. There's a situation that happened a few years ago in Mexico um, outside of Oaxaca. And it was a bus that was hijacked by supposedly cops, but there was 43 male students that were going to a protest in Mexico City. They've never been seen since. And so a lot of the mothers have these posters like she does. That's Hilda. And they go around holding up the poster of their child that's missing. And I spent about five days with Hilda at going to different locations. And then we did a photo shoot. Super sweet woman. Uh, then I went back home. This is in Tucson. I was snuck into an ICE detention center, which was a, probably one of the hairier things I did. You know, I'm okay in these, like, war zones, but back home, it sketches me out a little bit more. Because if I get arrested there, it's just a huge, gigantic thing. Um, there was one point during the photo shoot where ICE came with a truck full of migrants and they're like, they threw me into a closet with my camera and I'm standing in a closet for like uh, 30, 40 minutes. Um, and I could hear ICE out there doing stuff. A uh, gentleman, a young man I photographed, another young man I photographed in the camp or in the uh, detention center. This little girl was writing her words from the heart. She would just do flowers. So that'll be part of her final photograph. And these are just um, scans of the negatives shot by the camera. Uh, loaded up again for another trip. Uh, this is all the gear. So this will be everything I have for weeks and weeks and weeks. All my clothes are there, gear, everything I need. And I was off to Tijuana. Um, I was invited by a priest in Mexico City. His name is Father Alejandro Solalinda, and he is kind of the rebel priest of Mexico. He helps migrants. He's helped hundreds of thousands of migrants. And the um, cartels have tried killing him. They tried burning him alive in his church uh, because he was keeping the migrants from being um, human trafficked. So the cartels didn't like that. There's also stories of the government trying to kill him also because he's helped so many people. This is the us and them camera again. That's actually the US-Mexican border wall that the camera's made from. Uh, this is my first photo shoot in Tijuana. And this was during, remember all the troubles that happened in Tijuana where there was tear gas and everything? This was on that day. 
This is Sololinda, that priest I was just talking about. This is in, that was in Mexico City. This is in the migrant um, caravan facility, and that's where we stayed. It was just packed, solid, wall-to-wall -wall with people. The migrant family. This was a sad story. Her, um, she hadn't seen her husband for two years. He disappeared in Honduras. And her eldest son was just killed by gangs and left on her front doorstep about two months before this photo. And they said they were going to kill her and the rest of their family, too. So she decided it was time she had to leave. Uh, this is P.O. He became my little, like, buddy. We did, like, everything together. We started traveling together. We're still in constant communication. He became famous in the within the migrant caravan because when he was crossing the river from um, Guatemala, there, he had his backpack on with all of his possessions in it, and he's starting to swim across the river, and there was a woman with her baby, and they both started to drown. And so he threw off his backpack, he swam over to her, and he saved the woman and the baby. And um, he was just like the one who saved them. But he lost all of his money, everything he owned just went down the river in the backpack. And uh, he's such a sweet guy, man. And a woman and her son. And then that night, I had dinner with everybody in the caravan, and we went back to my, um, where I was staying at my fixer's house. And we stopped to get a pizza. We were just like really hungry, just in the car for 15 minutes. Car got broken into. Us and them, camera was stolen. All the film from all the migrant photo shoots was stolen. All my equipment, all the gear that was in that one shot was just gone, and it's never been seen since. Um, and it was a real bummer because, first of all, I, I had photo shoots set up. I was supposed to be in Iraq and travel with the uh, YPJ, which is the female fighting force, the Kurdish fighting force. And I was going to go with them from Iraq and into Syria. And that was canceled. Um, just a bunch of trips were canceled. And that's the broken glass from the broken window. And it was an odd thing, too, because they broke the window, they climbed over two seats, went into the back of a blackened-out SUV, went underneath a tarp, and just took the pack. They took nothing else in the car. It felt kind of like it was organized, but we haven't heard a single thing. So that gave me a chance to make a new camera, um, new us-and-them camera for the same purpose, which is right here. This is, this is after about eight months of construction to build the new camera. Because these cameras sometimes could take a year and a half to five years to make. Because it's all done by hand. Nothing is computer aided. It's all old school machining. Um, you know, you, where you know your speeds and your feeds and your coolant mixes. And that's some welding on it. And so these are the photos. These are what the finished photos look like. Um, like I said, it's nine different sheets of gelatin silver paper that I tone and work different and then put them together. I make a steel frame and then I pour three gallons of acrylic resin over the top. Then I put the words from the heart on top of that resin and then another two gallons on top of that. Then it's about a week's worth of sanding. That was at Standing Rock. This gentleman, um, it says his words from the heart is, I can't pronounce the name of the village he is from, but it says, name of his village and I miss you with a heart. He was a Syrian refugee. Um, her, in Arabic, it says hope. Uh, this is Chief Arval Looking Horse. 
he told me that he, what he wrote says, um, I hope someday all my exes will like me. <laughs> but it actually says, um, we are all spiritual, we will survive. He had a great sense of humor. Um, another Zapatista rebel. Uh, this was in Palestine. She just had words, all those words was like hope, trust, beauty, love. This is that Zapatista couple, and that whole entire thing that they wrote is all about coffee, beans, and corn. <laughs> it was beautiful. This, uh, this uh, Palestinian gentleman, this is all in Arabic, wrote this beautiful poem about rain and how, you know, how beautiful the rain is and to accept what rains down on you. And then um, all the work ends up in an exhibition. And like I said, like I, I, I gear a lot of my um, installations to shrines or altars where with this one, you can see the camera in the middle, right up there. So that's the S&M camera, and which would be like the communal part, the uh, sacrament that goes out. Then there's um, up here would be kind of like the Godhead or you know, Christ figure. Down below is a plumb bob. In Catholicism, you have the altar stone or the reliquary, where you have a Catholic relic underneath the altar. And so that's what that would be. And then the actual images are the saints that go around in Catholic churches. And that door um, is from here. This is the UN fingerprinting room in Karatepe, the Syrian refugee camp. I, the refugees would come in, they would do some paperwork, and they would get an EU visa and a boat pass to get to Athens. They would be fingerprinted, and on the way out, they would, all this is their, the black ink from being fingerprinted. And I thought it was just, just such an amazing thing that just like, this is the first time they've had any sense of humanity in like five or six years and they get fingerprinted, they have a visa, they don't have to worry about being blown up or shot, and you know, they go outside and they just wipe all that ink off and they just get on the boat and go to Athens and start the trek. And so you can kind of see there, that's uh, all the fingerprints. And the mayor of Lesbos, Greece gave me the door for this project. It actually says up here, it says, just push through in Arabic. There's the plumb bob. I always put something that has to do with the subject inside the plumb bob, and I'm the only one who knows what's in it, and it's sealed. This was, it was kind of a sad story. This is the main um, figurehead up above the altar. This little sheep right in here, um, I found it in the breakwater after a really tragic boat rescue we did where it was a lot of infants and children uh, good amount of the children had died in the passage. And after a boat would come over, we would clean up the whole site. You know, we'd get everybody off to the hospital where they're supposed to go. We would clean up the site. We had three tarps, one for good condition, needs attention, and trauma. And then we would clean up everything. We would take the rubber raft, we would slash it, cut it up so it couldn't be used again and right in the breakwater where the uh, boat was, I found that little sheep. Um, so it was one of the Syrian children had dropped it or it was in the boat. And then in Arabic at the top, um, that says, it, it, it's Arabic it translates into like reality 
or a truth. And that is the end of the slideshow presentation. I think I did okay on time. <laughs> okay. okay. Just a brief reminder for the art students in the room, we're having a luncheon for you and Wayne starting over in the Visual Arts Building at 11.30 and we'll be doing a seminar with students starting at 12.30 demonstrating the cameras and some of those working things. We encourage you to take advantage of that. For the rest of you, if you'd like to come up closer and take a look at the cameras, you can do that. There's also some brochures along the side about his visit. Feel free to take any of those you would like. Thank you for being here this morning.